Welcome to the Paper Tiger podcast, where the editors of Lickwomberding High School student newspaper provide interview-style coverage of local, national, and international news with a focus on issues important to Bay Area youth. I'm Caroline Kreutzen, co-editor of the Paper Tiger Online. And I'm Gabe Castro-Root, co-editor-in-chief. The debate over how to safely reopen schools for in-person learning has been raging in school districts across California for months. Today, we'll hear from education reporters Mackenzie Mays of Politico and Jill Tucker of the San Francisco Chronicle about how that debate is playing out at the state and local levels. Mackenzie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So across the entire country and and the world, really, schools are trying to figure out how they can safely bring students back on campus while the pandemic is ongoing. And so the CDC has said it's safe to do so with proper precautions in place, but this is obviously still a contentious issue, both politically and in the everyday lives of millions of people. So can you give us a sense of what the situation looks like right now in California? Yeah, so we are coming up on the one year anniversary of most schools being closed in the whole state. And, you know, part of the issue is California has a massive school system. We have more than 6 million K through 12 students. Um, And so most of our schools are still closed, but as you guys know, there are schools that are open and some have been open for months and months. Um, And so the big issue here is that Gavin Newsom has basically said, you know, he's not going to act in a way that Republican governors have in states like Texas and Florida and said, okay, you have to open and you must be open Monday through Friday. That's just not the way that California works. And so what we've seen are sort of like incentives instead of mandates. So politicians sort of offering up extra money or right now, you know, starting Monday, we'll have a set aside of vaccines specifically for teachers. Um, But at the end of the day, it's still up to local school districts and they have to negotiate these terms with teachers unions. Um, and, And so we have some school districts who are saying, okay, we can open soon. And then others who are worried that they won't even be able to open by August for the start of the new school year. So it just sort of depends on where you are right now. So you touched on this a little bit, but how does California and really our lawmakers approach differ to what other places, uh, states are doing nationally and just like the, also the federal administration's approach to school reopening? Yeah, so California is big into local control, and I think that's out of necessity because of its sheer size, right? Um, And diversity, we have the Central Valley is living a very different reality than the Bay Area. Um, And then you have Hollywood and, you know, it's just would be too hard, I think, for someone to try to do a one size fits all. It's something you hear a lot, um, regardless of whether it's schools or something else. if you watch the governor's news conferences, he sort of reiterates the same mottos a lot. And one of his favorites is localism is determinative. And I think that's really the answer to your question is, especially when it comes to education, we leave it up to the people who should know it best, right? And in, in good and normal times, I think everyone agrees with that and really values that. But in scary times, like right now, there's sort of this sense to like, you know, it, it some superintendents have told me they're begging for like leadership or begging, you know, tell me what to do. And it reminds me of the, the wildfires. I heard the same thing, you know, we usually love local control, but right now we need some guidance or someone to point to that says, you know, Hey, he said this, um, it's not on me sort of thing. So I think 
um, you know, California just A, being big and diverse and, and different, whether that's geographically or demographically, and then plus, you know, leaving it up to locals is, is really what makes us different. And I just, I think it would be shocking if we, um, you know, if the governor decided to not do that, I, I think it just would be very anti-Newsom to, to not be local. So I, I think that's the, the best answer. And so one of the major players in this debate are the teachers unions. So, well, and they're opposed, they're opposed to reopening schools. So why is that? Um, and how much power do they have to prevent that from happening? Well, the political question, the political part of that question is actually easier to answer um, because, you know, teachers unions in California are incredibly powerful. The California Teachers Association is you know, when I started this job, people explained to me they are the biggest lobbyists, most powerful group you can think of. Um, we just, it, it's just always been that way. We, you know, have a democratic controlled state and they have important allies in the legislature that help them pass things that they support um, and vice versa. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it would be sort of a huge political risk for anyone to go against the teachers unions. Um, but the other part of your question is harder to answer. And, you know, it, it's become an emotional thing. You know, there's fear. We've lived through this global panic for a year and for good reason. We've all sort of had to learn together. You know, I remember when they said masks, oh, masks don't work. You don't need masks. And then we all learn, you know, we, we've all been sort of living our own experience and watching the feds tell us what to do and then having to sort of go back and change that. And I think that turned into a lot of distrust. So teachers are saying, you know, it, it doesn't matter at this point for some people if, if the Biden administration says, hey, it really is safe if you use masks and six feet away, there are still people who, you know, could have pre-existing conditions or be older um, and they're just really afraid or their families are afraid. Um, and so I think fear, and rightfully so, is a big important part of when you talk to teachers themselves. And um, a hard part of my job is really trying not to explain groups of people as a monolith, right? So there are teachers who want to go back. You know, even teachers who are afraid of the virus um, will tell you they don't they don't love Zoom class or that it's not doing as well as in person. It's not what they really signed up for either. Um, so it's been kind of hard to try to explain how everybody's feeling and, and sort of differentiate what the politics is from the like lived experience of everyone, I think. So one of the longtime tenants of the Democratic Party has been support for unions. And as you mentioned, part of the reason why the teachers unions have so much power in California is that it's an overwhelmingly democratic state. Um, but our current situation in California has pitted to some extent democratic lawmakers and especially local Democratic lawmakers against um, the unions. Do you think that this will have long-term political implications on the relationship between the Democratic Party and unions? Okay, well, that is an excellent question. <laughs> um, and I think everyone's asking that. Um, and I'm sorry if you hear a dog bark, that is my great day, Nora. Um, but um, yeah, it's a really good question. And, and some people who are like really zoned into politics, especially in California, had sort of the foresight to ask that early on. Um, and I think the, the biggest you know, push I see here is from parents who are voters. I just published a story this week and I'm talking to liberal parents, progressive parents in places like Berkeley and SF 
I'm not supposed to say SF, am I? <laughs> I say this because I got totally blasted on Twitter for saying Cali instead of California. Um, and someone told me that um, people feel about SF instead of San Francisco. It's the same way as Cali. I'm not, a, I'm not from California, um, <laughs> but sorry, for, sorry for getting uh, sidetracked. But yes, um, parents especially, they are voters. They are finding themselves sort of um, disillusioned. Um, and, you know, it, it's weird for people to always be pro-union and pro-Democrat and be a Democrat themselves and find themselves on the opposite end of the like institutions and the politicians they've always agreed with. And I think the school reopening issue is one of those things. Um, and in California specifically, before maybe some parents, some Democrats were kind of quiet um, about how they felt because I saw some really ugly debates in like Facebook groups, community Facebook groups, where if you spoke up and said, I would like my kid to go back to school, they would accuse you of not caring about teachers, of maybe not even caring about your children. You know, it just got really, really heated. And now that Biden is president, I think that parents, especially in California, kind of feel emboldened to speak up and say, hey, look what the CDC says. Hey, look what Gavin Newsom says. And they are not Trump, um, not by a long shot. Um, but back to your question, you know, people are really wondering if there's going to be some longstanding um, fallout from this you know, parents who would, you know, you might see on a ballot CTA supported by CTA, and there might be a parent who remembers this here and checks no instead of yes, because they're sort of angry about um, the, the unions pushing back. And then we also want to talk about the learning disparities between public school and independent school students that are likely to be exacerbated by keeping public schools closed when some independent schools, including ours, are conducting some in-person classes. So as you're talking to students and teachers and parents, what are you hearing about the long-term impacts of no in-person school and who's being affected most by that? Yeah, I think that's sort of the biggest thrust behind getting schools back open. It's not that any parent um, or education advocate wants to endanger teachers. It's that they're trying to, I think, weigh risks and they're really starting to get alarmed at what a year or more at this point of no classrooms could mean, especially for students who don't have the best Wi-Fi, who can't do the homework or learn and not because of any reason of their own, um, who don't have a safe or stable home environment that is now essentially their classroom. And there are a lot of kids out there who, you know, school is much more than school for them is their consistency for a meal. Um, school is the place where um, abuse is reported usually. You know, teachers are able to be sort of a link between a, um, a, a child and support that they might need. It, it's just the options I think are sort of limitless and that's why people are really starting to panic. Um, and we know that before the pandemic, we talked a lot about the achievement gap and academic gap. Um, and so black and brown students in California before coronavirus were a thing um, had, you know, lower test scores or, or, or weren't getting the same amount of supports um, and after school programs that their white peers were getting. And so now I think um, civil rights advocates and education advocates, that's all they, they can think about is 
okay, if those gaps already existed, how much wider did they get? Um, and so I think we'll see a shift here when school does finally get back, um, not focusing on the safety part and the public health part, but the social emotional part. And how do we catch kids up and make sure everything is fair? Um, you know, for some families, they're worried. I, I talked to um, a, a lot of families of color for a story last week, and they said, you know, they had been clamoring for support, like send every send every kid in the community a Chromebook before the virus. And they said, we can't do it. And so for them, they're kind of resentful that, yeah, you could make it happen actually. And now they worry, will that be taken away? Will we not get the same support, you know, that we were able to see in the pandemic? So it's just, that's a whole other part of this that I think is really um, has people concerned um, and rightfully so. And something that's been on my mind is that we've been focusing on the youngest grades because they are able to, um, you know, we think that they're not transmitting the virus as badly as older children. Um, and obviously K through three is really important. You, you, you know, you have to, they say you learn to read and then you read to learn, right? So if you don't, if you're not learning it up until third grade to the best of your ability, it could really affect you for the rest of your life. But what's been on my mind is like high schoolers um, who have sort of fallen on the back burner, um, you know, you can quit high school um, and kids did that before the pandemic. And so are, are we going to see this huge just like dropout and while they go back, you know, is what I'm thinking about. And so what are state, like the state government or school districts or, or anyone really doing to address some of these problems? It sounds like there are a few proposals in the legislature in California that will do things like um, push for summer school. So maybe we should rethink the school calendar. Maybe this will be the thing that throws out those summer breaks and, and we learn year round, which some education advocates have sort of called for for a long time. Um, one good example I always liked was like, if, if I go on vacation for a couple of weeks and I come back, it's not uncommon for me to like forget my passwords to my computer and stuff. Um, and so you're asking kids to like take this huge break um, over the summer and not have what we call brain drain. Um, so I think there'll be a big push for summer school, um, normalizing, redoing a grade. You know, retention is, is a big conversation that's gonna happen right now. Um, and, you know, before it was sort of like um, emergency only, you know, some educators don't support it. Now I think we'll see, you know, I, I've talked to some lawmakers who say this should be just a lost year and everybody, even if you did well, we should all start again, you know? So there, there are some ideas that people are really trying to sort of cook up in a way that we can, we can address it um, so that in the long term it won't be as bad as some people are fearing that it is. How likely do you think that year round um, school option is to actually happen in our, I think, very traditional education system? And are there other things that you think might have like we see how we might see long-term changes in like how we conduct public schooling? Yeah, that's a good question. Like I said, the, the localism thing. So I don't know how likely it would be for the state to say, okay, you must offer summer school um, or, or change the calendar. It's really hard to do like a statewide thing. So I could maybe foresee uh, making it an option, making it easier for schools to choose it. 
but then we don't know who will choose it and who won't. And then if some do and some don't, you know, then there'll be equity concerns there because we're not all on the same page. Um, but I mean, I do think that some students definitely proved that they could handle it. And so just like in the workplace, there are a lot of adults who now are thinking, well, I don't want to go back to work Monday through Friday. I, I want a more flexible schedule. Um, and, and so I wonder if we'll see, at least for the schools that have um, computers and access, you know, maybe homework will change. Maybe, you know, you guys will be able to have more flexibility from home now that they know that you know how to Zoom and know how to communicate online, which I think, you know, high schoolers and, and middle schoolers have always been better at than their adult teachers. You know, uh, there's there have been a lot of jokes in the past year about, you know, kids troubleshooting the tech problems <laughs> for their teachers. So um, yeah, maybe we'll see some sort of reform there and, you know, flexibility. And then as we head into almost getting close to the end of the school year, who should we be watching? Who are the major players in the state going forward? I, it's hard to say major, I, I guess cities. Um, my guess is to say, you know, I've been watching more rural school districts um, because they've had lower case rates. And so they've also been able to, you know, they have smaller populations. They were able to vaccinate people more quickly. So I think probably the most important, it's not a person to watch, but places to watch that are moving forward are able to move faster than places like San Francisco um, to just see how, how they're doing, to see how the school districts that have been able to pull it off, if they have outbreaks, everything I know from the state is saying they're not having big outbreaks among the schools that are already open. Um, but I think that's who we should be watching is, okay, teachers are vaccinated in these places. How are you setting up the schools? What are the problems you run into? And then maybe we can learn from those districts to see how everyone else should do it. Jill, thank you for coming to the podcast today. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. So Jill, we wanted to hear from you about what's going on um, in San Francisco and greater Bay Area. Um, we just talked to Mackenzie Mays, but we wanted to start with the most important question here. Is there any chance that the San Francisco public schools will reopen for in-person learning this school year? Well, that is the $60 million question, right? I mean, everybody wants to know the answer to that. I, I wish I could tell you definitively one way or the other. And, and all the parents who want to know the answer. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think the, the correct answer right now is I don't know. Uh, I think in general that if I was to, to bet on it, I think some schools in fact will open by the end of the year. Um, perhaps the youngest students in elementary schools as well as some special needs kids, uh, things like that. I, I, I don't know that the district will be able to bring back all elementary school kids. Uh, as well as uh, upper grades in middle school or high school. Um, they are prioritizing after the youngest uh, student up to grade two. Um, students who have been the most vulnerable in distance learning, so those are like homeless students, foster youth, um, uh, students who have been completely dis disconnected because of technology and other issues, um, and newcomers, English learners, things like that. So. Um, so they are prioritizing who would come back first. 
but they're having a, a tough time uh, really making progress and, and setting a timeline. Right now, the district does not have a timeline for coming back. So uh, there's a big question mark there. So you talked about that district's lack of timeline. Is there any sort of plan that the city currently has and a deal with the teachers union um, that has been laid out for a possible return to school? So yes and no, um, there's two parts to that question. One, uh, they do have a deal with the labor unions on the health and safety standards for coming back. So that is things like um, teachers and staff need to be vaccinated. Uh, if the city is in the red tier, which they just landed in, uh, if they're in the orange tier, which is less restrictive, they don't have to have vaccines. So all of that is in the health and safety agreement. But what they're working on now is with the teachers, sort of what the school day would look like, right? Like how many hours students would go back um, in a hybrid model? Um, would it be every day, part-time, or would it be two days a week for a few hours or all day? And so they're really uh, negotiating that. The union is looking at, um, they'd like to see uh, four days a week, but uh, shorter day, three hours perhaps, whereas the district is looking at, they want students on campus for the full day, um, e either five days a week or, or maybe two or three days a week, depending on the demand for the schools. So they're still battling that out. Um, without that agreement, the district can't really move forward in terms of letting families know um, how and when they would come back. So it's, uh, you know, that right now there's just a lot of silence, but we know behind the scenes that they, um, they, they've sort of hit a wall in terms of negotiations and we just don't know when we're gonna see that agreement. So last month, the San Francisco city attorney, Dennis Herrera sued SFUSD for failing to develop a plan to bring students back in person. What impact, if any, has that lawsuit had in expediting the reopening process? Well, I suppose it depends on who you ask, right? I mean, it's kind of a crazy situation. I mean, the city is suing the school district um, because they haven't reopened yet. Um, they didn't have a plan. They're also saying they're violating um, a right to an, the constitutional right to an education and um, uh, equal access laws and um, so on and on. Uh, it's crazy, I've never seen anything like it in all the years I've been covering education. Um, and they, the district would say that it had no impact. Um, but we did see movement after the lawsuit was filed in terms of getting an agreement on health and safety standards. And it does seem like the school board is picking it up a notch in terms of um, discussing reopening plans, they're meeting more often, they're moving it up on the agenda, whether or not that's because of the lawsuit, I, I suppose, like I said, it depends on who you ask. And just this past Monday, March 1st, Governor Newsom announced a new plan using financial incentives to try to get schools open in the next month. So first, can you tell us what's in that plan and how do you expect it to impact San Francisco schools? Right, so it is a whopping $6.6 .6 billion with a B um, that would go to schools to help them um, address reopening, address um, needs associated with distance learning like summer school or maybe extending the school year or adding staff. Um, most of that money, 4.6 billion, is money that will be distributed to all the school districts, whether or not they're, they're open. Um, and the districts have, um, 
about a year and a half to spend it and you know really on addressing the needs of students and schools um, post pandemic really. Um, but 2 billion of it, which is not nothing, it's about $1,100 on average per student, um, uh, rests on whether districts can reopen uh, their schools and it, all elementary grades, as well as special needs and vulnerable students, as well as one grade in middle and high school, they really need to start opening by April 1st. Um, and they have until mid-May to, um, to get a, a part of that. The, the money starts uh, decreasing for every day that they don't reopen after April 1st. So um, it, it's a lot of money and it's a huge incentive. But what I'm seeing in districts across the state, across the region and in San Francisco is that it, the money can't necessarily speed up the process if they just are not ready to reopen. So in San Francisco, they, out of the, all the elementary schools, uh, 64 elementary schools, only six have been approved to reopen by the, the health department and the district uh, hasn't, they've only applied to reopen so far 13 and the, the the health officials have to approve the, the schools uh, to reopen. They kind of go and inspect real quick and make sure everything looks good and then they approve them for reopening. Um, but so far the, the district has only applied for 13 to reopen. They haven't applied for any middle schools or high schools to reopen. And so, you know, when we're looking at less than a month now off of that April 1st timeline, um, they're still pretty far from that in order to, to get that money. Whether they'll be able to reopen any, you know, reopen the schools based on those requirements by mid-May. I mean, at that point, there's only two weeks of school left. So, um, you know, I think we'll see a lot of districts leave that money on the table, um, which is, is, you know, terrible because they, it's very expensive to, um, to teach during a pandemic, to reopen amid a pandemic. Um, and, you know, a lot of districts are having shortfalls and budget problems, including San Francisco. And the idea that they would just lose $17 million is a, lot, is, is a lot. So far, we've mostly focused on San Francisco, um, but are there other Bay Area school districts where reopening might be more likely? Yeah, so we're already seeing a lot of districts in the Bay Area um, reopened for months and months, um, like in Marin. Um, and now we're seeing a lot of other districts start rolling out uh, their reopening. So we're seeing that in Palo Alto, um, we're seeing that in um, Piedmont. Um, Oakland is really pushing, but they're not quite there yet. But yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing a lot of movement toward reopening, um, at least for elementary schools and the youngest students. Um, I, you know, I think that there's, it's a lot harder for the older kids um, just because there's, they, they go from class to class. They can't do the cohorts, right? You, 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 it's hard to stay with 30 kids because they don't all take the same classes. And so um, we're starting to see some other options too um, for the older kids where they might come back to school for extracurriculars or sports, uh, but not academics. They would still be doing distance learning for sports. So a lot of people are trying to get creative as the clock ticks down to summer break. And what's the big difference between the districts in the Bay Area that have had some ability to reopen and SFUSD? You know, it, it, it depends a lot on the size of the district. You know, there was one school district in Marin County, it's the Sausalito uh, Marin City School District. It's one school, right? So it's a lot easier to open one school 
than 120 schools. Um, it also depends on the age of the schools. You know, maybe a lot, a lot of them have much better ventilation or working windows. It's, it's a lot harder for older schools uh, to reopen. But, you know, it's also an issue of leadership. And, um, you know, Manteca um, reopened to all grades months ago. And it, it really was at the, um, I've written some stories about it, but the, the superintendent in that district, he's a former military guy. He just has this sort of, I mean, you can sort of imagine, right? He just has his checklist and he gets things done and he was determined to reopen. He worked with the union uh, to make that happen. And they've been in class now for months and they haven't had outbreaks. They've, you know, been, been doing pretty good in that district. You know, you have other districts like San Francisco and Oakland where the union is very strong. Um, the union has endorsed basically all the school board members um, and the union has been really reticent to go back. Um, they've, you know, really been pushing for very stringent health and safety standards and the school board has not taken um, really a, a controversial stance against that. And so it really is, it's, it's leadership, it's politics, it's facilities, it's finances, you know, and the list kind of goes on. But I, I, I would say in the districts that have reopened, especially the larger ones, um, it really has been because they were just determined to do so. And they worked, you know, to, to sort of check all the boxes till they had no more boxes left and then they reopened. Um, it's not easy, it's not cheap, um, you know, but it really is, I think people have been talking about a can-do attitude. And, and when you've seen that, you've seen them sort of jump all the hurdles to get it done. So in San Francisco, who has the power to decide when and how schools will reopen? So essentially, it's the school district. They are they operate independent from the city. Um, they're their own political body. Um, so really, it's the school board with the um, cooperation of the union. And you touched on this a little bit just now, and we heard a little bit from Mackenzie Mays about the power of teachers unions in greater California. What does that power um, from the teachers union look like on the ground here in San Francisco for students and teachers, um, and I guess around the Bay Area as well? Yeah, so I mean, you know, teachers unions and other labor unions always bargain um, for salaries and working conditions and all of those things. We see that all the time. It's, it's part of our public um, process um, for employees. Um, but the teachers union in, in California in general and in San Francisco um, has a very strong foothold. Um, you know, San Francisco is an incredibly democratic, liberal uh, community. It has a very strong union-leaning political background. And many of the politicians that are in office, including all those on the school board, are, are supported and funded, you know, with donations uh, by the union. So, you know, you, you have a situation in, in some of the more liberal leaning communities where the unions might wield more power because they are aligned with the elected officials. And, um, and, in, and that's the same case sort of statewide. I mean, the teachers union, the California Teachers Association endorsed the governor, endorsed the superintendent of public instruction, and many, many, many of the legislators in, in the state assembly and senate. So, um, you know, when, when you have that sort of backing of the union um, and alignment with the politicians, 
it makes it very difficult to have that um, that balance, if you will, uh, or pushback um, in situations like this, where um, you know there's a lot of families and parents and and other uh, and public officials calling for schools to open, health officials calling for schools to reopen, but a very powerful teachers union, um, you know, concerned about health and safety. Um, basically saying no, you know, we're not, we're not going to reopen, um, you know, unless we get these conditions in place. So what impact do you think these continued school closures and the battles over reopening will have on Bay Area public education in the future? You know, I, I, it'll be interesting to see like where this goes long-term. Um, you know, there is a definite backlash against some of the unions and against some of the uh, school board members in San Francisco. There's now a recall effort of three school board members because of the reopening issue. Um, a lot of folks are talking about um, really getting some candidates for school board that are not necessarily backed by the union. You know, so there's definitely a, a different line of thinking than we've seen in the past in terms of, of sort of the pol politics of this. I think I'm more concerned about the impact on um, the students and youth, um, you know, that that are going to be coming back, and and what the impact of a year of isolation or more than a year of isolation and distance learning have done. There, there are some serious concerns among um, health professionals about the mental health impact on students, about the academic impact, about the physical impact. I was talking to one mom who finally was able to take her son out to a park because some of the restrictions had lifted and he had a play date masked, you know, with a friend. And at one point he came over to her and he said, my legs hurt. And because he hadn't been running, he hadn't been playing and he was eight years old. You know, normally every day at recess, he would be running and playing and, and, and kicking balls and, and playing on playground equipment. But instead he's been inside um, for more than a year. And, you know, so, so these are all things that we're going to have to be looking at in terms of how we spend our money um, in, for counselors or other types of, of support for young people as they return to school. You just touched on this a little bit, but um, looking ahead, what do you think happens for students, teachers, and families when schools do actually reopen? <laughs> Well, I don't know. You guys could probably tell me more, right? It's it's gonna it's weird. I think the idea that of of people going back and, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people about what normal will look like and back to normal, and it's kind of hard to conceive of what normal is anymore, right? And I, you know, I saw a photo actually of a crowded BART train, and it kind of freaked me out, right? So, because I mean, you watch television and you see two people talking next to each other without a mask and it seems weird right you're like get away from each other what are you doing and of course you know they're not in the pandemic um but uh you know so I think that you know that is the question like you go back to crowded halls of high school or football games where everybody's packed together and you know or 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 assemblies or theater productions you know and and everybody being in one place I I think it's going to take us a while to sort of um recalibrate what normal is and for everyone, especially for, for young people, you know, people may still have to wear masks in the fall, the, the students, um, because they won't all be vaccinated yet. And so we, I don't know that we're going to go quote unquote back to normal for a while. Um, you know, I don't know that 
you know, if, if homecoming occurs in November, if they're going to allow that, for example, there may still be some things that have to be uh, mitigated and, and addressed depending on variants and other types of things. But I don't know. I have a hard time thinking of normal. I have a hard time thinking of riding a BART train to work again, right? It seems scary to me right now. So um, I, I know someday we'll get back to normal, but it doesn't, right now it seems very strange to me. Thanks for listening to the Paper Tiger podcast. To read Mackenzie's work, head to politico.com, and to read Jill's, go to sfchronicle.com. As the debate over reopening schools continues, they'll keep bringing you the most up-to-date news. Make sure to tune in to our next episode. For more content, visit our website, lwhspapertiger.org, and follow LW Paper Tiger on Instagram. See you next time!